You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to read in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to the end of verse 16. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you should find the passage on page 1014. Uh, Or perhaps if you're using one of the other church Bibles, it's on page 1159. And on your telephone or iPad, you alone know. A number of months ago, we had this text. Actually, I think it was chosen by David uh, just at the time uh, he was uh, providentially summoned into hospital. And uh, at that time, I preached on it. And I kind of had the idea, maybe I would choose the text for this Sunday and then I could tell David at a sore toe, and then we could hear his sermon on this passage. But it is a passage of tremendous familiarity uh, to Christians, and yet interestingly at the same time, as I think I may have said last time, whenever we look at a familiar passage, we should always be asking the question, what is there about this passage that surprises us or even gets under our skin? Because if we fail to find surprise or perhaps something that gets under our skin, we've actually failed to find the meaning of the passage because the Scriptures both surprise us and have a way of getting under our skin. We read the parables and we think, nice story. We think that we we must be missing the point because Jesus told them in order to get under people's skin. And if we don't find the gospel surprising, then we can't have understood the gospel because in its very nature, it's surprising. And there are more surprises in this passage, as I hope we'll see. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you. Now, we know that everything Jesus says is true. So, when he prefaces something by saying truly, He's underlining its importance. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I was reflecting during the week as we were looking forward to Ruri's baptism that uh, someday our deacon's court to look after financial matters in the church in a spirit of generosity will decide that they will uh, contribute a bed to the maternity unit in Ninewells Hospital 
basically on the grounds that there is probably no church in the Dundee area that so populates those beds as St. Peter's Church, or perhaps we could at least go as far as getting written onto the wee name tab, uh, the name Rory Thompson, St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland. And it means a lot to us. I hope those of you who are visitors to our church family uh, realize uh, that today means a lot to us. Uh, We love new babies. We love seeing families extended. And not least, we love seeing mothers and fathers taking spiritual responsibility for their children. And we love to see those children brought, as David was saying, to be branded with water. Nobody in the New Testament ever baptized themselves. It's not about something we have done. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he offers to us in the blessing of the gospel. And it's very significant in this passage in verse 16 that when Jesus took these children in his arms, some of them were infants, Luke tells us, when he took them in his arms, he blessed them. He pronounced over them the blessing of the name of God. He branded them permanently with the name of the family of God. I wonder what happened to those children. But before we think of that, if we have time to think of that at the end, uh, those of us who are older, my generation, If you were brought up in Scotland, you remember a time when it was a social embarrassment not to have been baptized. I was baptized as an infant. My parents never went to church until after I became a Christian. I think all the boys and girls in my elementary class in the east end of Glasgow had all been baptized. Not to have been baptized was a social embarrassment because of the pressures of society. My guess is today, in a period of less than 70 years, that has been wholly reversed. That the children who are in the classes of our children in school, the vast majority, have not been baptized, and it certainly would have been a social embarrassment for their parents to bring them for baptism. Now, there may be something good about that, that people are more honest today. But it tells us a great deal about a revolution that has occurred during our lifetime, an extraordinary revolution in Scotland, that in a sense makes a service like this even more significant than it used to be. Because Gordon and Rosie could hardly be doing anything more countercultural today than bringing Rory for baptism. They fit into a tiny percentage of the population of Scotland who want more than anything else in all the world 
that their children should belong to Jesus and be part of the family of God, should love Christ, trust Christ, follow Christ, go with Christ, whatever the consequences may be. And so baptism, baptism of our little ones, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a profoundly countercultural activity today. And I think it's for that reason that there are lessons that we can learn from this little story in the Gospels. It's told in each of the first three Gospels, each one adds a little detail here and there of this incident that probably took place on the, the evening of the great day in the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, when the great sacrifice was made, when the high priest went into the presence of God in the holiest place of all, which he alone was permitted to do, and only once a year to seek the blessing of God, and then came out from the holiest place in order to pronounce the blessing of God upon the people of God, the blessing described in Numbers chapter 6 that we we were looking at, I think, last Sunday morning, the Lord bless you and keep you. The triple blessing of the name of the Lord in which the Lord says, in this way, you will put my name upon my people. And I want you to notice, first of all, that there is actually something quite countercultural in what these parents did in bringing their children to the Lord Jesus. Doesn't seem very countercultural, really, to us as we read it, but when we know something about the background, we discover it really is very, very revolutionary what they are doing. Uh, here, is a, here is a tradition that had grown up among the Jewish people, perhaps especially in rural areas where the people were not able to get to the temple for the great feast of the day of atonement and be there to receive the blessing that came from what to them was the very epicenter of the universe, the place where God had promised to be with and bless his people. So were they to be deprived? And scholars tell us that this tradition had developed, that if you were not able to be there with your family, then uh, you would bring your children to one of the rabbis, the local rabbi, the local scholar in the law, uh, the local university graduate who had been to the rabbinical schools. Remember how Jesus was despised and the early apostles were despised because they'd never been to the rabbinical schools. They didn't have the, the university degrees. And here is this great tradition. Everybody knows about it. Everybody in the village knows about it. And then this little group of parents, uh, perhaps not individually, but uh, speaking together, say this year, let's take our children to Jesus. Let's take our children to Jesus. Very countercultural very much swimming against the tide, and actually very much public as well, interestingly. Now, why would they do this? 
I think there's only one possible explanation. None of the gospel writers actually explained to us why they did it, but I think the explanation is obvious. That they had found in the elite of their own society a spiritual bankruptcy. And they had found in Jesus Christ the knowledge of God. He spoke not as their rabbis did, listing their authorities, their teaching full of footnotes. But he spoke as though he knew God. He spoke as the Son of God. We're even told they heard him gladly. They didn't hear the rabbis gladly. Actually, our reading this morning made that fairly clear, didn't it? Those scribes and Pharisees just see you better listen to what they're saying, but don't think of following their example. They're hypocrites. They're whitewashed sepulchers, he says. Inside, they're corrupt. And so here are people who had apparently discovered both the wonder of the Lord Jesus and all that he brought into people's lives and promised in his preaching and did in his works of wonder and especially what they described as the gracious words the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. It brought them into the presence of God. They could no more doubt that than they could doubt their own existence. And I think that must have highlighted something, as it always does for Christians, actually. It must have highlighted the bankruptcy of the elite, the thought leaders, the people who were respected in the society in which they live. And that's one reason why there are tremendous lessons to be learned here, isn't it? Uh, Their choice, serious people, their choice, thinking people, their choice, take your children to the rabbi or take your children to Jesus. And serious thinking people today, where are we going to take our children? Going to take your children to Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris? and the, the esteemed thought leaders of the day, the esteemed intellectuals of the day whose writings are filled with footnotes, well, what's the alternative? The only serious alternative is to take them to Jesus. It's a very stark contrast, actually. And the more and more you think about it, David thinks and talks and engages in this much more than I ever do, probably in a week than I do in a, in a year. But I am, I am very struck by the starkness of this contrast today because it underlines what a profoundly counter-cultural thing it is. One, to be a Christian. Two, to belong to a Christian family. Three, to belong to the family of God, and four, to want your children to belong to Jesus too. Hasn't it become one of the despised and demeaned things in our society to be so out of step? Isn't, isn't this what our governments are saying to us? You're out of step, and you need to get into step. Otherwise, we will make you conform. The name of Alvin Plantinga may be known to some of our American visitors and to a few others. He is by no means a household name, not even among Christians. 
He just happens to have been the single most influential philosopher of religion in the last 50 years. This year, he was awarded the Templeton Prize, which incidentally is always worth slightly more than the Nobel Prize. So he is the first philosopher in all history to have been turned into a millionaire overnight because of his contributions. I, I listened to him very recently say this, and, and my own experience such as it is would confirm this. He says, I'm struck by the intellectual weakness of the new atheists by comparison with the old atheists. For those of you who are old, he's thinking of people like Bertrand Russell and the philosophers of the 40s through the 60s who, who thought powerfully, intellectually, and Plantinga, obviously not a mini-brain himself, makes this comment. He says, you know, the arguments of the new atheists read to me like a relatively poor essay written by a second-year university student. And it's not difficult to see through it all. The world came from nothing. Well, what do you mean nothing? Actually, they mean something when they say that. Or the world exists because there is such a thing as the law of gravity. But the law of gravity is not an existent. It's a, it's a phenomenon that depends on other existences. And, and yet this, these are the great intellectuals of the day. The biological evolutionary scientists um, who are in the same situation as someone said of the great Scottish philosopher, great in inverted commas, Scottish underlined philosopher, actually enormously influential, David Hume. Someone said Hume's philosophy was fine until he stepped out his front door. We need to understand what these people believe in. They believe in biological, biochemical determinism. That everything that happens in your life is simply a series of chemical and electrochemical reactions. And if you think that there is actually an I at the center of your life that in a sense dominates your life, then you're living in cloud cuckoo land. And that everything that you do and happens to you can be explained in these terms. Absolutely everything. Except if you really believe that, if you're a serious intellectual and really believe that, you daren't step out of your office at the university. Because nothing outside your office or your lab actually functions that way. But that's the big thing. And the baptisms that take place in the early 21st century, by and large, in our great institutions, in some ways very subtly in some of our governments, what are we doing? We bring our children to such and say, baptize them into your family so that they will think this way, except don't teach them to think seriously enough to see through what it is that you're saying. You know, the astronomer Royal, who isn't a Christian, I don't know whether he's an agnostic or an atheist, actually said relatively recently, 
about Stephen Hawking, who has now decided the world is kind of self-existent or self-produced. I know Stephen Hawking well. And I know Stephen Hawking has read hardly any theology and almost no philosophy. But you see what happens? Does it irritate you ever when some pop star makes a pronouncement about ecological concerns who can hardly spell ecology? You say, you are borrowing your fame in one area and you're transferring it as though it were an authority to another area. It's one of the most common phenomena of the 21st century. And what's the astronomer royal saying? He's saying, I don't believe in the use of God, but I can see what is happening here, that people are borrowing the authority that they believe they have been given because of their work in one area. And this is what Plantinga is saying. And they're transferring it to an intellectual area in which they are actually children. And isn't it so interestingly, so challengingly true that in such a world to bring your children to the Lord Jesus is regarded as really, really the most countercultural thing you could possibly do? The most countercultural thing you could possibly do. And that's a tremendous challenge, isn't it? It's also a challenge, but rather interesting, because it wasn't so countercultural in this world, but it's enormously countercultural in our world that I think probably for 200 years, most people have thought it was the mothers who brought the children to Jesus. I mean, there's even a hymn for those of you who remember hymns. When mothers of Salem, their children brought to Jesus, the stern disciples drove them back and bade them to depart but there's nothing in the passage about mothers. There's nothing in the passage in Matthew when he tells about mothers, or Mark when he tells about mothers, or Luke when he tells about mothers. And interestingly, the pronouns that are used, the theys, they're all masculine. I don't mean the mothers weren't there, but at the very least this was the parents'. And in all likelihood, the fathers. Now I ask this question. What has happened in the late 20th century and into the 21st century? What is perhaps the single greatest social problem that governments dare not mention? Do you know what it is? It's the absent father. That's what it is. The absent father. There are parts of the world where governments are prepared to admit that, but not prepared to admit it here. Somebody does some research and comes out with the conclusion, really the best thing for our children is that they have a father and mother, and the father and mother live together, love one another, eh, eh, follow what actually, surprise, surprise, turns out to be a biblical model, and that researcher gets his head or her head blown off for despising single parents. Nothing to do with despising single parents. It's saying the absent father is contrary to God's design for life. And I think it's important that we notice that here in what is a moral and intellectual and spiritual responsibility, 
Dad is there bringing his boy or girl to the Lord Jesus. For those of you who are younger fathers, that's a great challenge, isn't it? And that's going to make you different. I mean, that that may be just the single biggest difference in the young families in our church from the world in which they find themselves day by day that dad is really committed to the spiritual and intellectual and moral and psychological well-being of his sons or his daughters. But it's a challenge, isn't it? Um, Bible is full of that challenge. There's a whole book in the Bible written for dads, actually, isn't there? To help them spiritually rear their children. It's the Proverbs. Begins with the, is it nine or ten big talks that dad has got to give? You know? Have you had the talk yet? In the Old Testament, didn't mean the birds and the bees. Interesting how the birds and the bees have become the gods of our age. How if a visitor from Mars or somewhere further on kind of came down as a, as a, ter- a super terrestrial doctoral project to review what is the deity of this society in terms of what is given most prominence? Be sex, wouldn't it? undoubtedly be sex, which apparently, according to these people, is just animal behavior. We think of ourselves as animals, we behave like animals. And if there are absent fathers who do not know God's Word, who are blinded to the, the, the mists of what is, is just all over our world now, um, we do understand, don't we, how, how crucial this is. And we also understand, don't we, that we do not know what it is that we are rearing our children for the Lord Jesus in order to experience. But we're not the first parents who are in that situation. I remember when I was a boy, people used to say, it's a terrible world to bring children into. I think if they were saying today, this is an awful world to bring children and rear them as Christians. To say you're a decided Christian in this world, forget about it. No, no, we're committed to it. And that commitment is something that we learn, don't we, from these parents. Then we learn something too from Jesus' response and Jesus' actions um, the first thing, it's an incidental thing that uh, he, he can deal with whatever gets in the way. He can. I, I mean, in this case, it was his own disciples. And actually, sometimes it's the people who are nearest to you who are most difficult to deal with, isn't it? Get in the way. Family is great. Family can get in the way, can't it? Can get in the way of you wanting to rear your children for the Lord Jesus. Are you, are you serious? Think of, think of what they may lose. And I remember one of our children showing me his application. 
It was a him, not a her. It was definitely a him, not a her, for something or another. And there, Stark, in the application, I am a committed Christian, a committed Christian. And I, I raised my eyebrows and thought, I wonder how that's going to play in the application. Might lead to an interrogation. What do you mean a committed Christian? What do you believe about this? Somebody says, I'm a committed agnostic. There are obstacles in the way. And Jesus is able to deal with the obstacles. And he's able to deal with the obstacles for this reason, that no matter what we or our children may lose out on because they are Christ's, he has promised they will receive a hundredfold and you might be a teenager in church this morning, just at, just at the point, I remember well, you may not believe it, but I remember well as a 14-year-old faced with the claims of Christ, thinking to myself, I think I'm going to lose my friends if I go that way. And I remember clinging to a promise I'd found in the Gospels that Jesus had made. You remember when Simon Peter said, well, if, if we're going to lose things, is there anything in it for us? And Jesus says... Look, anything you lose, I will restore a hundredfold. You know, most of us who are of some age, our young parents, can you even count the number of friends you've got who, like you, are Christian believers, and many of them spread all over the world? Do you know anybody else like that? Has he not kept that promise? Will you not be able to say with your dying breath, he kept his promise? And in that way, at least the Lord Jesus is able to deal with all the difficulties and everything else is of secondary importance. At the end of the day, God is not going to ask how high you went up in the salaries or how big the house you lived in. He's going to say, did you follow me wholly? And did you discover that not one of my promises fell to the ground? So he, he dealt with the disciples who unfortunately were the difficulties in this situation. But he's able to deal with all the, all the things that confront us, all those demons that arise in our minds saying, if we are wholly the Lord's, won't we suffer? And of course the answer is, but the Bible taught you that you would suffer if you were wholly the Lord's, but he also taught you that the compensations of knowing Christ are far greater than any loss you or your family may experience as a, as a child of God. I have never yet heard a Christian who suffered for Jesus Christ say at the end of their lives, I wish I'd never committed myself to him but rather go into glory, go into the future, realizing that uh, this, was a, this was a small thing to experience for him who died for me on the cross. How beautiful, therefore, that Jesus, having, having dealt with the difficulties, took these, took these children to himself. And the, the whole imagery here is almost like an act of adoption making them his own. He took them in his arms. 
and he blessed them. And as we're constantly saying, that doesn't mean he said nice things to them. It means he branded them with the name of the Lord. And it would be forever theirs, as is true of baptism, which is why in the last few years there have been people in the Church of England wanting certificates of unbaptism because they're haunted by the fact that the Lord claimed them and they cannot escape. And so they want a certificate saying, I've escaped from him. And the church, at least in this instance, has wisely said, but you can't escape from him. You may reject him, but you may discover he will pursue you until your dying breath. And then you may yield or not, or not. And so Jesus took them up in his arms, infants as well as children who could walk, and he, he pronounced, I, you know, this is the only, I think this is the only occasion in the Gospels where Jesus is said to bless anybody. Isn't that interesting? And the most obvious connection between the word blessing and what these people were familiar with was the great blessing of Numbers chapter 6, in which people were blessed by the threefold name of the Lord being placed on them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's, I think it's the only statement in the whole of the Old Testament that says the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, like this. And it's so reminiscent, isn't it, of the words that David used for the baptism this morning that come from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Baptize you into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, pronouncing upon them every spiritual blessing, bringing them into the family, giving them the family name in which they would either rejoice or from which perhaps some of them would run. You know, I wish, uh, I wish a tracer could have been put on these children. Wouldn't it be those of you who are budding novelists, there's a novel for you. I was blessed by Jesus of Nazareth, and, and here's the story. It's interesting, you know, when, uh, when James, Jesus' stepbrother, wrote his letter, these children, some of them, would be about the same age as our young parents in church today. And many of them, because of persecution, had been dispersed all over the place, and some of them had suffered a great deal. And James says to them, you know what I'm going to say to you. You count it all joy, don't you, for the Lord Jesus. You count it all joy. And I'm fairly confident if you could find one of them and ask them the question, so what's happened to you? 
Well, I counted all joy. I suffered. I, I knew I was belonged to a persecuted minority. But I'm so glad my parents committed me to that because blessing upon blessing has followed as I've responded to the Lord Jesus in faith. Oh, this is a great, great thing, isn't it? But it's tremendously challenging. And then Jesus did something else, and with this I'll finish. He, he made what was happening a kind of sermon text. And he turned to the crowd who were watching, probably not now the parents or the children, but to people who were coming to watch. You know, people used to turn up in their thousands in Scotland to see public executions. So I'm sure half the village was here. If they'd heard there was this amazing phenomenon of these parents taking their children to Jesus rather than the rabbi. And uh, a wonderful thing was happening here. As Jesus said, you see this? Now, I'm speaking to you now. Unless you receive the kingdom of God like these little ones, by which he means you see how helpless they are, and you see how trusting in me the older ones are, unless you receive me like these children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. It is the most amazing kingdom to be in. Actually, it did have a king who one day was red with the blood of his own sacrifice for our sins and who calls us into his kingdom. But you see, we, it's like baptism. We can't do it to ourselves. We need to be drawn. We need to be brought. We need to be carried by the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to enable us to say, and now I see it. Now I at last see it. It's Jesus. And he himself is the blessing. Well, let me ask us this question. Is your life blessed? Is your life blessed? That means it's come from outside you. And this passage is teaching us there is only one source of real and lasting blessing. It's to be found in Jesus Christ. Are you his? Want your children to be his? Whatever. Do you want to be his? Whatever. Then the kingdom of God is offered to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us in Christ and thank you for this wonderful tenderness that not only enabled these parents to trust him, but enabled their children to trust him. can't help wondering if any of these babies in his arms cried, whether he was able to pacify them. But we do know that he was and remains able to bless our children
to bless us, to bless us to our children, to make them a blessing to us and to the world. And we pray that this blessing may increase and abound in our own church family here, as especially we give you thanks for the baptism today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.